you are listening to Comes a Time with O'Teal Burbridge and Mike Fenoya. If you're digging the podcast, do these guys a favor and review and subscribe. It means a lot. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're joining for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. And now, here's Mike and O'Teal. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Comes a Time podcast. That is my friend, O'Teal. That is my buddy, Mike. Back together again. Too long. Ebony. (laughs) I I hate that song. I shouldn't even have done that. (laughs) It's black. It's white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but we've been doing these like i've done a couple solo podcasts because you've been so busy with busy with your special which by the way is crushing thank you, buddy. thank you i appreciate it don't let me down it's out there guys if you haven't listened go to youtube.com forward slash mike finoia m-i-k-e-f-i-n-o-i-a uh thanks otiel and thank you for sharing it um hell yeah dude man i'm kind of blown away by the uh the response and all that it's really awesome and uh what's cool is that people are in the comments quoting jokes that are deep into the special which means they're watching it they're sticking around they're not clicking and going eh i'm done and then moving on so i'm happy about that um should be man but but we'll we'll get to talk about that on our next solo podcast just you and me uh but oh by the way <laughs> oh by the way yeah that, i can't wait to talk yeah we we gotta <laughs> yeah but today's no uh no slouch either though huh no today this we had one of blower. my yeah who knew but john amos who among many things depending on what era you're <laughs> uh, of what year you were born i was born in 64 so i remember John as James Evans, the father on Good Times, the yep. Norman Lear nightly television show. Uh, black America's Dad, the first America's Dad for Black people. And then also the smash hit uh, miniseries called Roots, which detailed, you know, an uh, African's journey from Africa to here and yep. that whole story. Um, but he also. You know, most people that are younger would probably remember him in coming to America. You know, and and also, I mean, yeah, that and Good Times. I mean, just that show. Yeah. I grew up watching it, and uh, it's I mean, just ubiquitous. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just you know that was seriously like as we were talking about it, I was thinking because I watched a lot of TV with my grandparents, and you know. Um, when like Nick at night and all that, I always gravitated towards like that kind of seventies yeah, odd couple taxi, <laughs> you know, all in the family, good times, Jefferson's Sanford and son. I loved Sanford and son was, oh, that was one quite possibly favorite. one of my favorite shows of all time. Fred Red G, Fox man. is come just, on. yeah, come on. <laughs> you big dummy. I love him, but I mean, you know, there's a couple of dads tv dads like we spoke about you know he, he's off. the one yeah hit, i'll tell what you want why well, it's interesting i think i mentioned this to you on the phone when we were talking about this him and dan laria who was the dad in the wonder years 
Ah, were two yeah. dads that I really, really yeah. loved, both football players. Interesting. Dan, Dan <laughs> played at Southern Connecticut, and uh, yeah, it, they both were were football playing, you know, dudes that went into acting and played dads <laughs> that are pivotal in my like TV watching. As like these are really cool, tough guy though, you know. These but weren't gentle. Yeah. Yes, vulnerable. And in John Amos's case, which is what's so great about him, because. He is that guy that he played for yeah. real. And we always suspected that he was. And now at 59 years of age, I've verified. Hmm. Yeah, he is that guy. Yeah. Super intimidating, like physically, even at, you know, he's like 82, three, four, something now. But still, when you shake his hand, you're like, you're shaking a grown ass man. Thing. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, totally. You're like, that, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, exactly. It's immediately like, yes, sir. A grown ass man. I know what you mean. I do know, what, know mean. what I mean. That football I player do. hand, but yeah. it's also, he's super gentle, super fair, clear. It's super clear. He's not going to take any shit from anyone. Right. right. Yeah. Like period. Like, you know, this just from a look. Yeah. But he's also so gentle and so vulnerable. Yeah. And and the career he's had, I mean, Mary Tyler Moore, Dick Van Dyke, James Earl Jones, Sidney Portier. Then you fast forward, you know, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Ed, Eddie Murphy. It goes on. You go into this guy's yeah. uh, IMDB, which I believe is uh, international movie database yeah yeah or yeah. internet that's or imdb is, internet? is yeah imdb database yeah not sure what the i is but it's movie how many movies you done Inter i think it's internet movie database yeah internet movie i, I mean think. you just start at the 60s and every decade no he's, he's, working, he's, working, yeah, he's working, omnipotent working. Yeah, yeah it's incredible and he has one of those voices that it's yeah. great to like you know the james earl jones morgan freeman He's yeah. in that like Mount Rushmore of TV voices, you know, <laughs> you know, you know what he reminds me of kind of in a way is Ken Kesey in the way that he was like Kesey was a barrel chested, like, yeah, a, like wrestler, a like physical, tough guy, like just a like, yeah, yeah a but, a, but, a, but a, <laughs> like he also believed that communicating with animals when you wear a, a, a mask, you know what I mean? Like there's a. There's a wonder and a beauty and a like yeah. I am fascinated by that. I'll tell you, that's one of the things that drew me to Kerouac originally was he got a he got a ride to Columbia playing football. And then he writes yeah. these like romantic beatnik literature like he changes the world with, with his literature yeah. about like, you know, being like, you know, spilling his guts to a beautiful woman at a train station or whatever. And it's just like, yeah. that's not your normal athlete, you know? Yeah, it's not so, like yeah, a, yeah. A jock, dumb jock. Right. <laughs> right. And it's like, there's these vulnerable kind of, you know, it's the thing I love about Ricky. It's the thing I love about John Amos. Yeah. yeah. Just tough. Yeah. But, but also like self aware, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, bucks the trends and stuff. So now this was like talking to some, I think you had said it years ago. It's like we have these like living exhibits, like these living museums, living history books. Yes. And it's just wild to be able to kind of like, he was there at the beginning of TV, you know. <laughs> it's really when it fascinating. Was still the Wild West of TV, and yeah, yeah, really great conversation. You guys are gonna love it. It was, uh, you know, I feel like my whole life is my whole life these days is is an episode of did somebody dose me 
or on the other side of the coin, who needs acid? It's so yeah. crazy. I don't even need it. Yeah. Like, you know, I know we're going to turn off the computers and go talk to our wives and go, yeah, we just had to talk with John Amos. <laughs> and mean, he's telling us about how he's a huge dead end. <laughs> yeah, Fire on the Mountains is favorite song. <laughs> All right. Enjoy, All folks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you guys are having fun, uh, rate and review and share and join us on patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod. And, uh, oh, Teal, I've been drinking out of my comes a time mug. There it is in focus. We got baby. some merch, guys. You can find it on our uh, – go to our socials, comes a time pod, and uh, you'll you'll find your way there. And Yeah, uh, they make great, great holiday gifts. They sure do. No matter what holiday you're celebrating. Yes. Flag day or Christmas or Easter or Han- – Hanukkah. Or the days between, or Hanukkah, Diwali. Yeah. Diwali just passed. Diwali did could, just pass. But we could still get that late Diwali present. <laughs> the late yeah. Diwali present. That's right. You totally <laughs> can. Yeah. And please check out O'Teal's amazing album on his YouTube channel. Right. It's it's there that people can yes. find it there. And, and on sh- Spotify and all the Apple Music, it. wherever. This stuff yeah. matters, guys. Your clicks. And your likes and your shares and all that. We yeah. all we all are working for this omnipotent robot lord named <laughs> Al Go Rhythm. And he likes little snacks. Those likes those at least he's got rhythm. Yeah. Al Go Rhythm. <laughs> Maybe you say it like that, it's not so shitty. Al Go Rhythm. Thank you guys. We love you. Enjoy John Amos. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. How cool is this? Yeah, uh, we we usually do our intros afterwards, so and you know it's just loose. We are conversation. It's not, yeah, it's not really an interview. It's more of a conversation. But for me, I really what I I want to find out most what matters to you the most. We could talk about your history and all that, but I'm more interested in. What matters to you the most, you know, especially now after a, such a long career and stuff. But um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for making some time for us, man. Thanks for allowing me to participate. God, it's truly Absolutely. an honor. Yeah, and needless to say, at, in the band, we were completely surprised <laughs> that you were a fan. <laughs> when, uh, I think I... You might have liked something or said something on one of my posts on Instagram. I was like, what? Is this the real guy? You know, and then I saw KC. And I was like, and then fast forward to later when you come out to the concert, man, what a, you helped uh, everybody's vibe that night just with your presence and being so friendly to everyone. Are you there? I'm here. All right. <laughs> he said you didn't ask me a question. <laughs> well, I'd like to ask a question. As a as a Chiefs fan, how do you feel about all of the Taylor Swift stuff? Is it a distraction? No, it doesn't bother me because I think ultimately they're going to start to play football and concentrate on that exclusively. <laughs> That's when the real Chiefs will come out. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> I'm a Miami Dolphin fan, and I'd like to congratulate you on that win in Germany. Uh, I I think it's uh strange that they send NFL over to Germany to play. I think it puts a weird kink in all of our um, seasons and all of our progress. But that's just my opinion. I got you. Well, it's a global game now, so it's cool that they're playing in Germany. I think. I I think so too. I just wish they stayed for two or three weeks, maybe give them a little bit of time to settle and then travel back. But yeah, mm. you guys have a great team this year. Uh, Taylor Swift or no Taylor Swift. <laughs> well, how was it that you did come to acting? Because I know originally you wanted to be a football player, right? And got some yeah, time on the Chiefs. Too, but ironically enough, it was in the football pursuit of a football career that I discovered my real talent and it was confirmed for writing. Because when Hank Stram released me from the Chiefs the second time, he allowed me to read something that I had written, and it was all about my trials and tribulations in, in an attempt to become a professional football player called the Turk. And when I read it, the entire team responded in such a way that 
it let me know that I had a possible career as a writer. And I then began to pursue that 100%, leading to a career writing, starting with writing for television on a local basis, and then ultimately uh, writing for um, network television shows and then writing my own projects. And that's when Casey and I began to really collaborate. He is a uh, filmmaker and me as a writer. So we had it all going on. Wow. That's amazing. So who who got you started? Did you have any like writing mentors when you were like going to take this left from football into writing? Well, the beautiful thing about television in those days, it was an emerging medium. So I emulated those writers that, whose programs I loved, like show shows with that uh, with that ensemble of wonderful writing performers uh, like Sid Caesar, Imogene Coker, and Art Carney, and all the rest of those guys and ladies that went on to become legends in the industry. And those were my favorite programs, to variety programs with uh, those people and others. So I, I became a big fan of commercial television and uh, all the writing that went on. I studied it. I mean, I studied it really, really diligently. And I, I, I found it was very, very gratifying to be able to come up with stuff that they some in some cases they could use. And I auditioned my material and ultimately got hired as a local, uh, as a writer for a local television show. And that led to my building my confidence with a couple of radio personalities who were given, uh, Loman and Barkley were a couple of local radio personalities whose marketplace ran from Santa Barbara, California, down to San Diego. And uh, they gave me an opportunity to become one of the writers on their television program. And the other writers that were just getting started at that time went on to become uh, luminaries in their own right, like uh, Craig T. Nelson, uh, Barry Levinson, an Academy Award winner. Yeah. Uh, Barry was. And we all got started on a local basis. So it was a wonderful time. Television was just emerging and there were no rules. So if you had the confidence and the brashness, which I did, to um, to uh, apply for those jobs as writers for television, it was a wonderful opportunity to learn and to grow with an industry that was just beginning to emerge. Everybody had television sets at that time. Yeah. The medium hadn't begun to develop itself in terms of opportunities and its offerings. <laughs> That's great that comedy was kind of the thing that got you going first. The comedy writers, you know, because yeah. Mike is Mike does stand up and uh yeah, Mike I heard you were as well. Yeah, I heard you were hanging out at the comedy clubs. I sure was. A lot of the clubs were just getting started then, and uh, the first club I ever worked at as a stand-up was a club called It. That was the name of the club. The, the, the comedy store was named It. Yeah. <laughs> Some other guys were just getting started at that time, working at different places where Richard Pryor yeah. amongst them. Yeah. And so we were all really getting started at that time. Our careers were just beginning to take off. None of us knew exactly what we were doing, 
other than the fact that he wanted to make people laugh. So it worked out all right. I came along at the right time. Yes, you did. <laughs> How was so it? You, oh, I'm sorry, Atiel. Go no, ahead. You, you go ahead. You go well, ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna ask just because uh, you know it, it interests me that you read a piece that you wrote in front of your uh, the players. Um, yeah, my peers. Yeah. What was that like for you? Was that a moment of anxiety or fear or excitement? A little bit of everything. Uh, I felt very, very comfortable because I, I, I had read the material to a couple of guys earlier, and they cracked up and they and they got reflective in all the right moments. So I knew I had something, but it wasn't until Einstein gave me a chance to read it before the entire team, and their response was so uniform that I knew that confirmed my ability to write and my ability to reach an audience that I had decided to focus on. Yeah. It's a wonderful feeling to find the niche. As yeah. Confirmation of ability. I think that's a really neat thing to think about, you know, because I we all have, we have that thing and we go, do I have it? Is it just me that thinks this? Or, and then when your peers go, that was funny or that was poignant or like you said, at the right moments, they got reflective. That's a really important moment in a creator's life. Believe it. Yeah. That's everything uh, from professional wrestling to music, but you can connect with the audience. Yeah. It doesn't matter if, if it's uh, on a small scale or a big scale. Yeah. Like, you know, I like that confirmation of ability. That's big. <laughs> <clears throat> So when did you uh, feel like you were first starting to make some headway as an actor? How did you go from like writing to acting and wanting to perform more? Well, I always loved the live medium. So while television didn't offer me the same opportunities, you could always find stage work if you're willing to work for literally uh, nothing in, in a lot of cases. And just for the experience in so many other cases. So the opportunities were there if you were willing to put in the time to learn your craft. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn how to become a proficient and reliable stage actor. Because I felt if I could present myself live to an audience, I could work anytime, anywhere. And all I needed was me and... Uh, the, and in a, a place where the audience could be comfortable and it made no difference to me how small the audience was or how large. I had the confidence that I could make any group of people laugh in the right places and I could tell stories. I always regarded myself more as a storyteller than as an actor. And, and mm. feeling that way kept kept my ego intact because there were always stories to tell. Were there any particular actors or... Uh either stage or television or in um, movies that you look to in those early days to emulate or to uh, look up to? There were quite a few. And if I were to look back and say, were any of them people that I was to work with later? Definitely. People like Ernest Borgnine. I remember seeing him on a cover of Life magazine and they billed him as Hollywood's ugliest man. Yeah. <laughs> Classic, good-looking guy, but he had a wonderful gift of uh, acting and spontaneous uh, repertoire. You know, he, he could he could make any group of people laugh. 
Yeah. Or become reflective. I, Ernest was a gifted actor. I, I, I have a... Oh, I'm so sorry. My fault. Go ahead. Well, all right. I was just going to say I got to work with him a, a, a number of times, and it was when I got to do a television series with him uh, in which I played a police officer, and he played a uniformed police officer, and both of us were in a squad car, and unbeknownst to me, the third member of our law enforcement team was a robot, and <laughs> that made for, that made for some good good laughs and good writing as well. What was the name of that show? I got kind of... Cleveland Haven, <sighs> I believe it was. The names of our two characters as police officers, and I remember being in the locker room and realizing that I was working with Ernest Borgnine. And I, when it dawned on me who I was working with and the things that he had already accomplished as an actor, I froze. I, huh. Initially, I wasn't intimidated <laughs> at all by his success, but when he really registered for me was right in the middle of the shoot. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm working with Ernest Borgnine. I couldn't believe it. And it came my turn to do my lines. Not a word came out. I, my jaw froze, my mind froze. I said, my goodness, I'm working with Ernest Borgnine. And the thought of it was, was so startling to me that nothing my, my machine was shut down. <laughs> I love that. That's, I, I, that's how much I respected him. And we, we had a project called Future Cop that we worked on together, in which, like I said, we were both policemen <laughs> in Haven. Future was the project, which later it became Future Cop, and um, was sort of a forerunner of today's science fiction, in which <clears throat> are really automatons and uh, robots. So it was it, we were ahead of our time, but he was wonderful to work with. He had a, he had a natural gift as a storyteller himself and as an actor, and he was very generous in that he he showed me and taught me without sitting me down and saying, this is the way you do this. He showed me by example, the discipline that was required. Uh, you had to study and you had to know your lines. That way you had the confidence to freeform when it came time to and the opportunity presented itself to freeform. So I learned from some of the best as I was coming up. As I said, it was, it couldn't, I couldn't have picked a better, but I couldn't have picked a better time to try and emerge or immerse myself in the industry and to learn from those that were also learning as the medium began to develop itself. My timing couldn't have been better. It's so interesting. And just to show you how small of a world it is, and I apologize for interrupting, but that kind of blew my mind. Um, my great grandfather's, one of his best friends was Ernest Borgnine. Um, they served together in, uh, in the, in the, the armed services and uh ernest was from connecticut as well and uh he had came to my great grandfather's house and uh i got to meet him when i was a little kid and mm. uh it was really incredible he's uh he'd come to the house a couple times and uh he was always very very nice a very nice man so uh, he holds a special place in my heart because he's friends with my great grandfather. <laughs> so it's really neat <laughs> to hear you say that. I just got chills. And uh, I was lucky enough to have my great grandfather around until he was a hundred. So oh, you were you were yeah, blessed. really, really neat. 
So uh, just so <laughs> wild to hear you say that. He was always such a the ugliest man in show. How funny. Because you always <laughs> I see him as kind of like such a bright memory. You Me know? too. So many movies like I know we're dating ourselves, but you say <laughs> Ernest Borgnon is just like I know. So many movies come to mind. He was such a big part of my childhood. <laughs> well, mine, well, even when I got older and I began to study films, my some of my most my favorite films were westerns. And yeah. of course, he played in that classic directed by Sam Peckinpah, The Wild Bunch, in yeah. which he was one of the Wild Bunch. He That's along right. with Woods and Bill Holden and a few other luminaries that became legendary themselves. But that was a great Western as far as I was concerned. I must have memorized the dialogue because I saw it no less than I have a dozen times. <laughs> That's great. It's great to hear that the directors were letting you guys improv. Do you find that some directors are okay with it and some aren't? Or that it just if the director trusts the actor more, if it's a better actor, then they're allowed to go off and improv beyond what's written on the page? Our freedom was a direct, there was a direct correlation between our freedom and the amount of trust that the director had in us and we in him. So to work with Ernest, let me know that. But the, the main thing about working with him was his preparation. He, he looked like he was ad-libbing. He was so comfortable in his delivery that you'd, you'd, you'd think he was making it up on the spot. But it was just the end result of having rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. His preparation was everything, and that, so that taught me a life lesson for the industry. Be prepared. You never know when the opportunity was going to present itself. And uh, I learned. I did nothing but learn when I worked with him. It was a learning experience. Wow. Yeah, I've heard that expression. Uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that is very true. I like that. <laughs> Uh, people know uh, may not know uh, what a passion you have for music. Um, I certainly didn't realize, and uh, then when we got to meet and hang out, and uh, I'm sure fans of Comes a Time have already seen the videos of you on the rail singing at the O'Teal and French show, which was such a kick for us. It, it, the band was the band played better that night because of it. There's no question about it but then when we got to talk to you for a minute uh me and jason i think lamar and, and you brought up noel pointer yes the violinist that i was so into as a teenager because you wouldn't normally see like a violinist at all improvising and a young black guy that could clearly play classical but was also improvising and doing that was a mind blower. So when you brought that name up, I was just like, whoa, but you were more than a fan. You collaborated with him, right? Yes, I did. I was at home one night in New Jersey long before I met him. And I was listening to uh, Symphony Sid, who was a radio personality who played jazz. And he'd usually try and do a show or two from his favorite club. At that time, he was broadcasting from a club called Fat Tuesdays in New York. I was living in Jersey, so I turned the radio on, and there he is, Symphony Sid. Jumping with my boy Sid in the city. 
So it was it was cool. You see, the thing about your musical education in those days, you could hear some of the best musicians on the planet playing in New York City, which was an, obviously in close proximity to where I lived in Jersey. So when I heard Noah Pointer play, I became so inspired that I knew I had to meet him. And I had my pajamas on. I was getting ready to go to go to sleep. And he, he started playing a piece called Roots Sweet. And of course, I had I'd already participated in Roots, the program. So I immediately jumped in my clothes, right over my pajamas, jumped in my car and drove to New York City because he was at Fat Tuesdays in New York. And that was only about a 30-minute drive from my home in uh, South Orange, New Jersey at that time. And I went over and I uh, asked, I, I, I went into the club and I asked uh, the club manager, I said, can I speak with uh, Billy Pointer? Billy was the, was the uh, lead musician for Noel's uh, musical ensemble. And he said, and he was Billy, well, of course, was Noel's brother. His big brother, and I mean a big, big brother. <laughs> and so Billy asked me, said, well, what is it you want to do? And I said, I'd just like to improvise with Noel. If he could play Roots Sweet again, I'd heard him play it earlier that evening on the radio. And he said, well, let me ask Noel. And he went over, and Noel was in the middle of a, of, of his uh, second second performance for the evening and he agreed immediately. And so I went on and I just went up and I improvised. I had no idea what I was going to do, except I knew I had a story to tell. And it fit in with the music that he had already played earlier called Roots Sweet. So I, I, I began to tell a story as I saw it that went with the music. And it worked out fine. And on the basis of that, we uh, both mutually expressed a desire to collaborate further. So we wrote a show together called An Evening with John Amos and Noel Pointer. And he was such a gifted musician. And that was the thing in those days. We, we worked more by inspiration than by hopes of acquiring any vast fortune or having a career. And if it felt good to us, we did it. And we didn't care where or what the venue was or what the audience was. The music, like I said, the industry was emerging at that time. So we were free form artists and there was a great feeling of freedom in those days. So we, we, we were pretty successful. We toured for the better part of a year and a half and we wow. played all over the United States and uh, audiences loved what we did. Sometimes it, they had no idea what it was we were doing. <laughs> but we worked off on the fly, whatever inspired us to, to, to play or to do. We went ahead and went for it. And nice. very often it worked. A few times that it didn't work, we learned from it. So yeah. it was it was a wonderful time to experiment. And he, being such a gifted musician, playing the piano as well as the violin, and I mean, playing it to the degree that at the age of 14 or 15, he was playing with world-class symphonies, and wow. uh, both here and abroad. He was a gifted he was a genius, in fact. And yes. as things would happen in our respective lives or that were newsworthy, like Ronald B. McNair, the astro the black astronaut who perished in the uh, uh, spacecraft, I was on a plane coming back from New York, flying to California, 
and the play about three in the morning on the plane. I got the inspiration for a piece we later were to call McNair, which was a tribute that I'd written to Ronald B. McNair. And I called Noel because I woke him up. It was in it was about three thirty or four o'clock in the morning in Brooklyn. But I woke him up and I said, Noel, I've got something. And he said, Okay, wait a minute, let me get up. And he got up, woke himself up to some degree, went to the piano, and it started playing along with whatever I I uh transcribed or whatever I dictated to him. Wow. And uh, on the strength of that spontaneous creativity, we wrote a piece called McNair, which we later performed with some of the lead audiences, uh, or rather the lead ensembles from various institutions, musical institutions and aggregations that you can imagine at that time. But we had a, it was a wonderful time for creativity. And to work with Noel Pointer was so gratifying and so confidence inspiring that I'll, I'll look back on that as one of the highlights of my life and my career to work with Noel Pointer. Wow. That's great. <laughs> <clears throat> I love that. Uh, you know, you had the pajamas on, you were ready for bed and then you heard it and you're like, nope, no going to bed. It's time to 30 go minute make, drive too. like, I'm going to go make this like, happen. Yeah. Yeah. Inspiration. You got to act on the inspiration when you it really happens, do. folks. You well, know, so- You know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's a, it's still, you know, I try not to fanboy and stuff, but when I hear you, when I heard you say my name, you know, when we were hanging out at the Cap Theater and stuff, it was such a weird thing. It's kind of like Ernest Borgnine when you you know you think you're fine, and then because I've you have one of those distinctive voices. Like in in television, like James Earl Jones, Morgan Freeman, you know, they're just these classic vo- A lot of people might not know. I know you do, John, but remember Roscoe Lee Brown? Absolutely. I had the chance to work with him in a Disney film called The World's Greatest Athlete, in which he played an African witch doctor and I played a football coach. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh my Dude, God! Yeah, his voice is one of the <clears throat> quintessential just American voices, but definitely if you're a black, like the Roscoe Lee. I mean, he just and you have one of those voices, so it freaks me out when I hear you say my name. It's just like, wait a minute! It's like uh, <laughs> someone must th- feel like if John Wayne says their name or so. You know, I don't know. Or I just, yeah. just like <laughs> I understand. I'm. I'm... I feel nothing but gratitude when you mention it in that vein. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I'm sure that you had, uh, I wanted to ask you about, you know, when you had the opportunity to work with some people, like, for example, maybe I would imagine Sidney Portier was a big hero. No doubt. You know? Absolutely. No doubt. And uh, who were some people that you got to meet where you were like, oh, wow. You know, that were just 
I'm sure there's many. I know Ernest Borgnine also, but well, there were so many that you you name the luminary, and chances are I got to work with with he or she earlier on in my career. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it was quite a small world then, huh? Yes, it was a much smaller world and a very educational. Yeah, if you were willing to learn, the opportunities to work with those people afforded you an education that you could not have re received otherwise. It was an incredible time to learn the industry and to learn who 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 your real peers were, and uh, it was very gratifying to know that you had worked with some of these people, but you had learned from all of them. Mm. In some cases, the right thing to do; in other cases, the thing that you would never would do again if you had the opportunity. Yeah. That's yeah. massive. Yeah. So they were more accessible <clears throat> back then. Well, it makes sense. They probably weren't as famous, as legendary as we are now back in the... Although some of them, Sydney probably was already legendary <laughs> way back then. But, but did you get a chance to work with Sydney? Yes, I did. We did a couple... I did a couple of films in which Sydney, Sydney was the star. And... Uh, but he was so such a luminary that none of us even dreamed or had enough courage or were naive enough to think we would ever work with an actor of his caliber, but he was the in, the entertainment industry as far as African Americans were concerned. He was the man. There was no other actor that we knew of that had reached his heights in terms of their popularity worldwide. He was one of a kind. So I'm yeah. grateful for the opportunities that I had to work with him, and just to be in his presence. To work in a project with Sidney Poitier, that meant that you had arrived at a certain point in your own respective career. So it was a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful time for me to uh, look around and say, my goodness, I'm working on a film with Sidney Poitier. And uh, that's when you knew that you had, you had finally arrived. You could say you had a career. Working with Sidney Poitier in a movie that was as good as it got. None of us dreamed that we would ever do better than that or reach those heights, in fact. And how old were you about, the, if you remember, uh, when you did that film with him? You see, how old was I? Yeah. Do you remember how old you were then? I can't Roughly. The exact, my exact age, but suffice it to say that I had... Um, started in the business and I was getting some momentum going. So I guess I'd be in my very early, very early forties, late thirties, somewhere. Yeah. That's great. <clears throat> um, I, I have a something I've been dying to ask you since I knew that we were going to be chatting with you. And I, I mentioned this to O'Teal. Um, I'm always fascinated by uh, the, the role of a father in uh plays in movies in television shows and you know i i as someone who grew up watching you as a father on good times uh i just want to say i think it was uh some people see father figures on on the screen and you kind of get an idea of like this is like what a man is and could be and things like that and uh i feel like uh you did such an incredible job as a father figure on that show and literally and figuratively but 
my question is this um when you're playing a father or when you're you know number one were you a father at that time and if not or if so how did that relate to the way that you played the character and did you realize the importance of what you were representing to the folks that were watching the show well yes i was a father at that time my daughter was born shannon my first child was born and uh so she was a, a, a very precocious child. She uh, loved to read. She loved to be involved in the arts. And she was some, somewhat of an extrovert herself. So it all worked out fine. She enjoyed what I was doing, and I was able to teach her uh, as I progressed in, the, in my career. She was able to uh, observe and emulate me in some respects though she chose not to become an actress. She was more of the production type person, but she could recognize and appreciate talent when she was around it at an early age. Wow. And, uh, so it's, I knew the responsibility I had in portraying television's first black father. And uh, it, it was an awesome responsibility because no matter what your choices were as an actor, there were some who did not always agree with your choices. And in fact, we came under a lot of fire from various organizations that were emerging at that time within the framework of the NAACP and the other uh, less conservative organizations that were concerned with black imagery on television. There was a lot of pressure all around. And Norman Lear conceded this as a producer and the director of our program Good Times, as well as other television programs that became uh, iconic programs in themselves. Yeah. He had a pretty good fix as to what was going on, the pressures we were under, but it wasn't until we, he and I formed a good relationship. And he had, in fact, fired me a couple of times. I was fired from Good Times only to be rehired later on another program uh, that he was developing. And our relationship now spans better than some 50 or 60 years. Norman recently turned 101 years old. Wow. Damn. Imagine that. So if you could uh, really appreciate it when you say 101, that, that in itself is amazing. Yeah. But the fact that he contributed to the development of television, the most powerful means of communication we have as human beings, I feel, for all the art forms, for music, yeah. for comedy, for drama, television was available to the average working man, and Norman Lear was able to reach the average human being and speak to them in a language that they understood, whether it be drama or comedy, sometimes wrapping them both in the same package. And you wouldn't realize that you'd been given a life lesson until the program was well over and you'd begin to talk about it. As people used to say in those days, over the water cooler at work, yeah. Or, you know, whatever you did, whatever you were doing, you learned from watching television. Oh my Produce God! Yeah, that's part of his biggest contribution. Just like really tackling, you know, social issues of the time, like the whole dynamic, just in Archie Bunker's house with yes. him and Meathead and Edith and the, you know, like and the right. Jefferson and all. That. Just everything he did, we watched so many different programs of his in the, yes. that time. 
because they all dealt with like they would take it head on whether the it was tough mod. stuff right yeah i mean they would go right into it man yeah, yeah and, he, uh, the face of, he changed the face of television literally in programs really had no learning substance it might come through in a few cases every once in a while like omnibus or some of the other programs who are more for the elite or the intellectually stimulating but norman wrapped it in a package that the average consumer could appreciate and learn from. Absolutely. And I was very fortunate in, in having worked with him. And I, we remain friends until this very day. Uh, so I'll always be appreciative of the opportunities that he provided me with as a writer and as a performer to express myself and to not have to bite my tongue about what, what I knew were the realities of life, the average uh, minority in those days. And he gave, me that, he gave me that opportunity, which I'll always treasure and always be grateful for. Excuse me, go ahead. No, 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 please. I, I was just about to say, like, you know, and I'm listening to what you're saying, and I appreciate all of it because you, as a kid, sitting in my grandparents' house on the floor watching their TV, it was interesting to be able to see into other worlds that you're not maybe necessarily – uh, neighbors with and I felt I loved your family you know I really genuinely did and and I felt that way about some other TV families that it was just different and I realized different was okay at a young age because of that and I and I I really genuinely I I you're you're one of my favorite dads <laughs> if not my I, I mean that and I said that to Oteil right away when he told me you guys had talked it's there there was a strictness but a vulnerability and a caring uh it, it was really awesome I, and I and I just I, I thank you for for everything that you know it, it was really great to see that to see I like watching the the parent child relationship and the dynamic. Uh, yeah, and the key word that you used right then in describing your affection for the program was vulnerability, and I learned that from Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner, of course, was a staple on your show of shows, one of the most popular programs at that time, and um, they had a wonderful ensemble of comedian actors. Mel uh, Brooks, Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks, some yeah. extremely creative people were all combining together to create your show of shows with Imogene Coca, Carl Reiner, amongst others. And uh, I learned from watching, those were my favorite shows in which the writers would perform as characters as well. So again, it was, a, as I say, it was a learning experience to be able to see these guys work at their craft and to really embody the, the spirit and the essence of what they were doing as characters and the sketches that they had written, it was a wonderful time. You imagine working with people like Mel Brooks, Paul Reiner, and Gene Coca on a regular basis, or just even occasionally. Yeah, you couldn't have. It was like getting a, a free PhD from Harvard. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. One of my favorite things that I was able to tell my friends uh, about meeting with you was that we always suspected we felt like you were that dad like that was you in real life i know i i know everybody universally felt that if i were to ask him 
And then to actually meet you and you absolutely are a thousand percent that guy, just especially after all this time, just made it even better. And that is something that uh, <laughs> you can't say about a lot of your heroes. I mean, <clears throat> you probably could say it about more of your heroes than I can of mine, but uh, sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes. You know, it could be a real letdown. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it can destroy the illusion to re meet them in reality. And other times it's refreshing and gratifying. So I was very fortunate in that I got to meet the man that was responsible for creating opportunities for all these wonderful talents, that being Norman Lear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He changed the face of the most important communication device in the history of mankind, I feel. Television yeah. had no real relevance or wasn't seen as a learning tool uh, to the degree that it obviously became until Norman took his rightful place as one of the creative forces behind all of television and changed the thinking of a populace. Yeah. Did, did, did future fathers on television fathers uh, ever reach out to you for advice or for guidance or... Uh... Anything to that effect? No, I can't say that they did. The fact that the, so many of them made it known to me that they enjoyed the program and they enjoyed what I was doing, but none I can't recall any of them ever coming to me for actual advice and sitting down. Any advice that they glommed for me would, was just learned and came, came about as a result of the dialogues that we would have about the programming. And there were some who were it wasn't universally accepted by every human being as being factual and being true to life. There were those who, who were opposed to it because they felt that the Evans family <coughs> trapped, seemingly trapped in poverty did not represent the opportunities that were being presented to all of America. And yet they, they did obviously represent a very important demographic and that uh, it showed a working class family living in Brooklyn. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me, Bed-Stuy area of Brooklyn. And um, so it was it was a learning experience all the way around. If you really got to look at it good. Yeah. It, it was a learning experience for me. I'll forever be grateful for the opportunities that Good Times, the TV program, provided me with. Well, I think it was a, just, it's one slice, like, you, you can't be everything to everybody, you know, like the Jeffersons showed someone, showed a family going <coughs> from lower middle class or middle class or whatever, and you know, like the whole theme song, moving on up, you know, right. and then, and so. And then Cosby I, Show was, was you know, a, a doctor and a, and a lawyer. Yeah. Or even back then, like. Archie Bunker didn't represent everything, but he represented that thing. He's trying to tell that story. Like I didn't need Archie yeah. Bunker to also be a rich Wall Street guy. Like you know, well, <laughs> and even and even Felix and Oscar, an odd couple, you know, two divorced men sharing an apartment without driving each other crazy. Like what a phenomenal, you know, <laughs> yeah. It didn't have to be everything to everyone. You're right, but each show had that vulnerability. That was a really incredible era of television. Yeah, it's so great to realize now. I, I realize it now more talking to you uh, how Wild West it was, like because it was just new. 
So it presented uh, a lot of upward mobility that you, you think of these things as having such a high ceiling right now to try to get to the top. Whereas back then, if you were open and willing to do the work, you could be like in the game soon. That's amazing. It was a great opportunity. And again, the timing could not have been better. It was timing. the most propitious timing <laughs> one could hope for in terms of opportunities, uh, in terms of the quality of television. The quality of television was such that we could reach for and aspire to anything we wanted to do in terms of TV. And the rest of it was up west where they got a yay or nay was really up to the sponsors primarily. Yeah. Yeah. There were no limitations. So it was a wonderful time. And I'll forever be grateful for the timing that I, I, I that was presented to me. It couldn't have been that couldn't have been any better. Well, you really took the ball and just sky hooked them one after the other, like Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Like, coming to America. The, all of them. Man. Yeah. We gotta talk a little bit about roots because <laughs> Casey was <laughs> telling me a story <laughs> that I want to get to in a minute. But it was such a profound uh change like it had such huge ripples and waves throughout uh america you know not just black america like just and that had to be that tell us the story like did you did you realize it was going to be that big or what how did we knew it had the potential to be earth-shaking plus of alex haley's book the book was such a phenomenal success roots yeah. that um, as actors, we begin to talk about the potential of it in terms of being a television program, even though at that time it had not been realized as such by the networks so or those re responsible for developing written material into TV programming. But we all knew that uh, intuitively and after reading whatever sections of the book were available to, to the public, and some of us were fortunate enough to know uh, and to have access to the early, uh, what would you say, the early uh, segments of Roots that were developed to realize that this was something that was going to be earth-shaking. It was going to be different from anything else that had preceded it or followed. And it was. It, tr it held true, which yeah. brings me to a point of writing which I believe is the it was the essence of television. Norman gave voice and gave uh, gave platforms to emerging developing writers at that time, mm -hmm. and that's always been my favorite form of entertainment uh, and creativity is the writing because you can start with blank paper and a pencil and literally create worlds. Yeah. Uh, it all starts with the written material. And I, I was a big fan of just about every genre you can imagine, science fiction, historical, the whole nine yards. So when Roots came along um, and I said, boy, whoever gets to perform in this program is gonna have a career. And we all realized for the opportunities that it presented in terms of giving dramatic actors a platform on which to present their talents to a world at large. And uh, to, to be in the capable hands of a Norman Lear, you couldn't ask for more. 
because he was he was a master at uh, recognizing the the power of the written word. Yeah. Being a writer himself and having had the life experiences that he had already had as a human being, he was able to convey that to his actors, and we in turn were able to convey that to the public at large. Yeah. Now, when you if, when you first auditioned for Roots, that wasn't the part. It was a different part, right? Originally, that they had you read for. Well, we had heard rumors that it was going to be at that time. It was going to be a series. And uh, so we tried to become as conversant with the material as possible. And the initial role that I was offered was that of a character that I did not get to portray. That was done by an actor by the name of G2 Kambuka, who portrayed the wrestler. And uh, mm. I liked the role of the wrestler. Even though it was not a pivotal role. It showed a side of the, um, of the uh, slave demographic that was not your next door nice guy he he was he was a recalcitrant slave and that he 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 knew what freedom was and he he was not the most diplomatic uh person in the room in regards to reacquiring his freedom so i like that because it gave me a chance to show the physicality of uh and the mentality of those slaves who were not content to be slaves or couldn't accept that role of subservient easily or diplomatically. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. G2 and I became very close friends prior to his departure from this planet. And uh, we went horseback riding together. I remember taking him out. I, I was a big horseman in those days. I raised horses, I loved horses. And I'd wow. like to, I was a pretty proficient horseback man, horseman, wow. my wife. Casey's mom was a uh, uh, inspirational force behind that because she was a farm girl having been raised in Iowa and she always had had horses. So I developed a love for horses as well, never knowing that one day I would be in a position to own a horse or two, <laughs> in fact. But I became very proficient at horseback riding, particularly bareback. And I raised a couple of horses from young colts up to adulthood to where they could be written by a fully grown human being. Wow. And I became a proficient horseback rider as a result of that. But I always rode bareback because I wanted <laughs> to emulate my Native American ancestors to that degree. So I, I learned how, and I became very, very proficient at riding horseback bareback. And wow. I, would take, I would take my horse up to the high desert in California for, for weekends at a time. And I uh, just take him up there in a trailer along with enough food and water for him and food and water to, my, to sustain myself for a week or for several days at a time. And I'd ride at night primarily because during the day it'd be well over 100 degrees or too hot to ride. So I'd let him rest during the day. And at night we would ride in that Arabian. He was half Arab, half Arab and half Morgan. So the Morgan ancestry of his of of his lineage gave him the size that was required to uh, carry a full grown adult and the, and the arab blood gave him the stamina he loved to run he loved to run and he loved to run at night so we had a good companionship and a good relationship and that was to keep him for several years 
And finally, I sold him when he became an adult, and I moved from California. Wow. <laughs> Bareback at night. <laughs> Amazing. Jeez. I love it, man. I want to hear more about the family, you and a Midwestern farm girl and riding bareback, raising horses and little KC. <laughs> like, that's a, it's the, uh, um, an America's dad story. Like, it's like, that's the real thing. <laughs> yes, it was. These were real life experiences that I was able to unfold in the character of James Evans as the character was further developed along the lines of what Norman envisioned. And yeah. it, as I said, the opportunities were there and I took full advantage of them. Uh, um, now, as a, as a writer and an actor, uh, was it, was it from the beginning of season one that you were involved in the writing as well? Or did that come afterwards? Or was that something that, how did you approach that? The writing of and the development of James Evans, the character. Yeah, well, like in. Yeah, I was very, very uh, forward and very forceful in uh, letting Norman and the rest of the writers know what I felt, what I knew were the true instincts and the true uh, manifestations of James Evans's character as we developed different storylines. I was very clear and adamant about what I thought, what I knew where James's real reactions predicated on the fact that I was living the life. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not imagining it as, right. as most of our writers were, who a lot of them had never had even had a momentary dialogue with any person of color. So all they could do is work from a fantasy standpoint. Yeah. And I was predicated, of course, on reality. And it was when I would bring that that uh, opinion or that, that forceful attitude in regards to the correct uh, demonstration is what this character would do in different situations, that our differences would arise. Because as I said, in those days, I was not the most diplomatic uh, yeah. in terms of conveying my uh, differences. Yeah, that's also, though, that's you're in a big role, and that's you. And big that's you representing a massive responsibility. So, I mean, good for you. And damn right you should <laughs> you know i mean that's not something where you let someone kind of fantasy write a role for you i mean that's you're living that role yeah like that's i always think about that you hear about some actors that just they take the script as is and recite the you know and don't really put much of themselves into it i don't know how i, I wouldn't i don't think i'd be able to do that i, I guess it depends on the role <laughs> I remember you telling us that you told the writers, well, let's take it outside. <laughs> yeah, I was not above at all uh, presenting the alternative to peaceful dialogue in regards to differences about scripts in those days. My uh, Growing up in New Jersey gives you a basic, uh, yeah. let's take it outside. Let's take it outside. <laughs> Well, that should be on the sign. <laughs> Welcome to New Jersey. Let's take it outside. <laughs> what, what part of New Jersey are you from originally? I was born in Newark and raised in East Orange, New Jersey, two cities in very close proximity to each other, but they couldn't have been more different in terms of opportunities and child raising. Newark, of course, was an industrial city with a tremendous job opportunities of every possible description you can name. 
and East Orange was a bedroom community. Most of the people that lived there in those days would commute to New York City to work. Right. Uh, it was only 11 miles, uh, 12 miles away. So you could hop on the train to Lackawanna and be in New York in a matter of, literally a matter of moments, a totally different world. <laughs> I just drove I just drove by both of them this morning coming back <laughs> now it from takes Philly. 2 hours, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the traffic is uh Now, yeah. I, I one of the things I wanted to ask you was um, you know, your love of I grew up with sports and I also grew up with music and literature and I wanted to ask you was there a teacher or a relative or a mentor that got you interested in reading and writing at 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 your at the earliest you know, age, um, anybody in particular that, that, um, you know, uh, gave you the, uh, the confidence in your writing and, uh, push that, that creative side. I'd have to say that that role was fulfilled by a number of educators that I had along the way. And that was a good thing about East Orange. We had a very good educational system there, starting from grade school on up. So by the time I, I matriculated high school, I had pretty much received a first-class education that would have been the equivalent of a couple of years in college at a wow. educational system. So, uh, yes, I was uh, encouraged to and in, encouraged to, re, to read and develop my academic skills at East Orange because we had a very good educational system and uh, all the opportunities to learn to read and to develop an appreciation for the written word were there in East Orange at that time. And I felt I had a natural affinity for English and for storytelling. I enjoyed it and I found it very gratifying yeah. to be exposed to and have access to all these wonderful writers and books and that became my favorite pastime, writing and reading and books in particular of just about every every form of literacy you can imagine. My favorite being science fiction because it allowed me to use my imagination and encourage the development of my imagination. Writers like Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury became commonplace to me. That was my regular reading material. So... Uh -huh. The Chronicles of Mars, and yeah. all those good science fiction classics that were developed later by uh, comparable writers. They were my regular reading material, and I enjoyed it immensely. And there's no doubt that it helped further my education. Wow. That's so great. My brother was so into the same writers, man, the sci-fi guys, and it just... Uh... It's so great to hear that there were such kindred spirits in so many ways. Um, I I don't want to keep you all day, but I do want to ask you about living in Africa because when we talked, you mentioned a little bit about it, and I think I saw an interview with you somewhere, and you said something about um, hanging with the the street people is like how you know if you've really like been accepted by the locals and I was really mm -hmm. struck by that. What was it that caused you to want, was it doing roots? What was it that made you want to, to go actually move over there? I think it was the acceptance that I got and just a feeling of being a drop of salt water 
in a saltwater pool. I, I didn't feel like I was being singled out for anything exclus exclusively or to the detraction of not being uh, involved in other forms of life or society based on economics or anything else. I just felt very, very comfortable in Africa and particularly when uh, I could move there and be amongst the people and develop friendships from all walks of life, from all levels, economically as well as educationally in Africa that uh, my education really began to take a solid form. And I felt most comfortable moving from one segment of the populace to another segment based on economics, education, the whole nine yards. I was always very comfortable in Liberia or whatever part of Africa I was in. And the exception being when I was in South Africa. And at that time, it was under such rigid apartheid laws that it was virtually impossible for me to become as comfortable as I would later on when they became more enlightened there. Yeah. Wow. Did it start off with like just a visit to Africa initially? So, Did it initially start off with just a visit to Africa or was this something you planned before you ever went the first time? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was something that the relationship with Africa emerged with each subsequent visit, and the longer I, I would stay each time, the more I developed a love and appreciation for it, as well as I became more critical in those areas that it needed criticizing in. Yeah. But for the most part, it was it was educational, and it was antithetical to what I'd been taught in the, the, the school books and some of the less enlightened conversations that I'd had with various other people who had gone to Africa or had, had developed relationships with African friends. And it, of course, it was contingent to some degree, to a large degree, in fact, upon which part of Africa they received their education in. If they were from South Africa and they had been subjected to all that South African uh, propaganda that was prevalent at the time, uh, then, of course, they, they felt one way about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us. Uh, what an incredible honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, you got something there. What does it say? Well, my son just brought me a note to remind me to add this and certainly make this part of my observations while I lived in Liberia or brought back. What it was was a helmet. That oh, I yes, that's right. <laughs> Tell I us about back, that. I brought back a ceremonial uh, hand-carved wooden helmet made from one piece of wood from the tree trunk of a, a tree, a particular tree. And it was carved in such a way that when you put it on, your, your vision was totally uh, focused to look through the helmet into what appeared to be a cinemascopic lens at that time. To this day, my son has the helmet. He oh. all these years, and uh, I tell you, when I put it on, the most miraculous thing happened. It, it became like a communication device. We had, we being my wife at the time, Casey's mom, and I always had livestock around, horses, chickens, mm -hmm. and uh, 
I put that helmet on and I was swear to this day that when I put it on and I could focus on an animal, I could almost call that animal without saying a word, just focus my uh, vision on wow. the animal, looking through that helmet. And uh, I came to find out later that's what it was. It was a communication device. You put that helmet on and you, you could communicate with the animals and with other human beings, if they were receptive. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a magical helmet. And to this day, we still have it, as I said. Wow. That's, that's really incredible. That's awesome, because I did want to ask you before you went, if you ever had some kind of crazy anomalous Star Trek mystical experience, and boom, there you go. <laughs> there it was. Exactly. I got to get you to tell one more super quick story. Well, I have a question before, too before we depart. Yeah. But um, you got to tell him the story of the guy uh, who pulled you over on the highway after he saw Roots. It pulled you over on the highway in California. So Roots airs, and I'm driving to work one morning, and I'm on the, uh, I believe it was the San Diego freeway, and uh, driver in the, uh, and the lane next to me indicated he wanted me to pull over, but it wasn't just any driver. Uh, he was an enormous man. I would say he weighed well in excess of 300 pounds. In fact, so he, he was so big, his car was leaning to one side. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what his reaction was going to be, whether he enjoyed the program or whether he was upset or not. Oh, yeah. And his actions to get me to pull over. So... I did reluctantly and with some degree of apprehension, I'll admit it to this day, because like I said, he was a big guy and his car was not in the best condition. And he was, it was in fact, like I said, was leaning to one side. He was such a big guy, well in excess of 300. And he climbed out of his car, he approached my vehicle and I could see he was still upset. He was agitated about something. I had no idea what it was and I wasn't about to, ask him what was the problem so i just sat there quietly and timidly and tried to get as small as i possibly could so i wouldn't look like i was intimidating or confrontational. <laughs> and he, he he said hey man i just want to tell you something i said yes sir what's the, what would that be so well i watched that program roots last night and i i, I didn't know what was going to come in whether he liked it or not and he said and I got so, God bless it up. And he, his profanity was a lot more liberal than mine. Because <laughs> yeah. I the story. And he said, I got so upset. I went upstairs, got my got my pistol in there, shot the blood goddamn TV. Shot. <laughs> so I said, damn, if he killed the TV, what's he going to do to me? <laughs> well, I was ready to leave at that moment. And I said, I'm sorry you didn't like it. He said, no. I love some parts of it, but that got me upset. Like I said, I shot the TV, and uh, he meant it. He, he had pulled his pistol and blew the TV up. But <laughs> I wonder if this guy is looking for me to compensate him for the loss of his television, or, or <laughs> what it is, you know, one way. Yeah. Or well, I'm sorry about that, sir. I hope next time you find something more to your liking. I drove, <laughs> and uh, I left him there as he reflected on the damage that he'd done to his own personal technology <laughs> to, to me as my fault, you know? My God. 
Well, uh, I like to and how it affects some people. That's a whole other definition of road rage, there, huh? See, I, I like to think that you, uh, he was on your side. He was so upset by what he saw done to you that he shot his TV because I know we wanted to shoot the TV too. Wow. And to see you the next day on the highway. What a wild no moment. That must yeah. have been a trip. Yeah. If it's if it's okay, I'd love to ask you one more quick question if we have time. Sure. Um, you know, we had uh we've had the privilege of speaking to some other elite athletes, Bill Walton, Ricky Williams, we just recently had on. And uh, it always comes up about, you know, the importance of having a good coach Um, and you coming up, playing football, reaching a level of professionally, you know, clearly a a fantastic athlete as well. Is there anything that you took from your upbringing as an athlete um, that to this day has stayed true as like a life lesson that helped you through the other careers and the other, um, you know, endeavors that you took part in? I'd have to say most definitely, and that coach, as you indicated, would be uh, a monumental driving force in my life and gave me life lessons. That coach was no less than the late Hank Stram. Uh, Even when he released me the second time, uh, he was still fair with me, treated me like I was a first-round draft choice, even though I was a free agent and had no chance really really had very little chance of making it on a club that is the Kansas City Chiefs back in those days prior to him going to the Super Bowl. I mean, the talent level was so high. They had the biggest people in football, the most aggressive, uh, the finest athletes that had ever walked the planet. People like Buck Buchanan and uh, uh, others, Mike Garrett, Heisman Trophy winners, Lenny Dawson, uh, yeah, Lenny Dawson. I, le- I learned and 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 was proud to say that for a few weeks of my life, I was a Kansas City Chief. And uh, prior to them going to the Super Bowl and then rejoined them after they played in the Super Bowl, two years later, I tried again, uh, not to be successful either time, but it did give me a chance to be exposed to and to share a locker room with and to share practices with some of the finest athletes that had ever played the game. Receivers like Otis Taylor and defensive linemen like Willie Lanier, guys who would go to the Hall of Fame, uh, to say that I shared a locker room with them and that for a brief period of my life, I was a Kansas City Chief. Uh, It'll always give me a feeling of pride, which is why my son is named KC Amos. (laughs) <laughs> As opposed to uh, if I tried out for the Bills, he would have been BB Amos. <laughs> Lucky him. Lucky him. You weren't a Miami Dolphin, huh? <laughs> All right. He, he's had no uh, uh, reluctance to let people know his name is KC. Although he doesn't go about telling them where the, what the origin of the name was. I'm quick to do that. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, it was a wonderful experience for me in a final analysis. I appreciate that. Thank you. That that's I I feel like the folks that have the great coaches that are honest with them and treat them real and you know fair go very far. You know, I feel bad sometimes for folks that didn't have a good coach somewhere along, whether it's little league, whether it's pro, 
college, high school, whatever it may be there. Coaches have a huge responsibility, you know, and uh, it's really great to hear that, you know, it was such a legendary coach like Stram that, that, you know, did that for you. Must've been incredible. What an amazing uh, journey you've had. Yeah. You've had like four different, really cool lives. <laughs> it's great. And all of them have been good in the final analysis. They've all been great and very gratifying, beneficial. Oh. And you're, you're smiling and happy and hanging out with me and my crazy band till two 30 in the morning. I got to just tell people how gracious you were. Uh, I am with a lot of famous people and sometimes I don't have time to take pictures and really give everybody all the time that they want from you. But you took a picture with every band member, every band members guest, the local crew, like you didn't write, and we could tell you weren't like in a rush or what you're just so gracious, so gracious to everyone. So thank you for that. And it's, uh, it, I'm glad for people to get to our fans to get to see you are that guy. That's on television. Well, Jim, I, that... I thank you for that, but I want to, I want to, uh, uh, reciprocate by saying your band members and all those that were with your band that night, it was a way of me getting to know them. As I told you, my son had introduced me to the Grateful Dead, of which you were obviously a stalwart member uh, for so many years and had so much influence. It took him years to convince me to go to a show with him, my very first Grateful Dead concert. And when I did finally acquiesce, coming from the conservative world of jazz and et cetera, and the music that's offered to me that I grew up with. And there were some luminaries, some earth-shaking musicians that I was exposed to at that time. But nothing had had the impact, including my career with uh, uh, Noel Pointer and others, that seeing the Grateful Dead and you perform with them had on me at that time. When I finally did go to the Grateful Dead show, I was hooked. And after that, I became probably one of their biggest fans kept it on a QT for a while because I wasn't sure how popular my relationship with the Grateful Dead would have been. <laughs> but nevertheless, I enjoyed it and it was wonderful. And we've become good friends and I'm a lifelong fan since then. Since then, I try never to miss a show when it's logistically feasible for me to make it. I go there live and I stay for both shows or even... Yeah for repeated performances do you have a favorite do you have a favorite grateful dead song i've got quite a few of them but i but i, I think fire on the mountain is one of my favorites that's uh, my I wife's think, favorite too i love the writing i love the music but I, what i love is the quality of the musicianship that's yeah. the thing it isn't just a fad or a type of music that comes and goes and is out of fashion next week It'll be with us from now on. It's changed the musical world. And it's changed my appreciation of the musical artistry that most of the band members possess. I mean, these these are some of the finest musicians I've ever had the uh, privilege of hearing, much less to say, you know, well, I know this one, I know that one, and we're friends. So it, it gives me appreciation on another level altogether to say that I know these people and they are great people. They're great human beings, but fantastic musicians. 
So the aggregation, when they come together, is it's always gratifying to me. But Fire on the Mountain would be my favorite. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. Well, well we're going to – I hope we all get to hang out together. What I want to do <clears throat> is meet you at the comedy club in New York when when Mike's doing comedy because – you know, he used to hang out with Paul Mooney and stuff back in the day. <laughs> so he's the he's greats. got the real comedy bug. Yeah. Heck like yeah. Uh we gotta go do that because Mike is super funny, man. We'll have a great time. And he's as much of a music head. I mean, we definitely have these three things in common between comedy and And I'll bring a picture of my great grandfather with Ernest Borgnine to show you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, no doubt. And I'll bring my memories. So we'll share. We will get deal. Well, it's fellow, a deal. Did I thank you enough? I can't thank you enough, rather, for the opportunities I've had to uh, to share with you our common experiences in music, comedy, and the fans, or rather the uh, the icons that we've come to know as fans that we we we've all established over the years in our respective careers. Thank you again. Thank you so much, man. You have a great great day we really appreciate you giving us so much time yeah it was well, such a pleasure and an honor i thank you guys for the opportunity and i wish you nothing but the best as the years come you thank you sir bless thank you, you brother <laughs> man that was great oh that was perfect <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> too KC. much Casey, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, dude. And that could have been a, a real awesome. disaster if he got drafted by anyone else. You could have been, <laughs> you could have been Amos the Viking. You could have been Amos the Viking. I love it. <laughs> it could have been uh, Amos. Yeah, New York Amos, NY. Oh, thank God you're Casey. No doubt, Casey is such a hip name. It's the best. Yeah, I love that name. <laughs> That's better than George Foreman naming all five kids George <laughs> Foreman. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> you guys have a great day, man. You too. We'll see you at the next show. Absolutely. I'll be back up there soon. And Jamaica. Meet you both. To collaborate with you at some point in our respective future. Hey, man, I will come to Jamaica in a second. I don't know when y'all are going to get at the timeline for y'all getting moved in over there, but you just let me know. Absolutely. All right, buddy. I want to collaborate big time. <laughs> it goes both ways, bro. God bless you. Keep on keeping on. You too, man. We'll see you guys next time. All right, now. God bless. We're going to stick around and uh, record our intros now. So thank you. Yeah. Bless y'all. Casey, I'll be talking to you soon too, brother. All right, big O. Talk to you soon, bro. Love you. Pantheon Media presents Comes a Time featuring Mike Fenoya and Oteil Burbridge. Executive produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Produced and edited by Eric Limarenko and Stu Silverman. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Comes a Time with Mike Fenoya and Oteil Burbridge. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're jonesing for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.